You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Good morning. Thank you so much for choosing to worship with us here at Grace Community Church. Most of you are old-timers. Some of you are just, well... Um, old. Uh, I'm speaking to myself, rapidly approaching that uh, category if I don't already belong. Glad you're here this morning. Today is a great day to be here. The first Sunday of Advent, a day in which we have already lit the candle of hope. And so naturally, our thoughts turn to the Old Testament prophet of Jonah. Um, Jonah strikes us not only as an unlikely prophet, the worst prophet in Scripture, I think, Jonah was, uh, but he also is an unlikely individual to think about as we begin our Advent season. The connection will start to make sense, though. When you think about Jonah's need for a merciful God and the need that the, the... the sailors had in this story, and the, and the Ninevites, those of Assyrian people, these Assyrian people who were some of the most wicked, cruel conquerors who have ever lived. And they didn't have the slightest idea that they needed hope from the, the God of Israel. They were in a situation where things were not looking good for them, so they were responsive to Jonah's preaching, but they didn't know they needed the kind of hope that they did. Our, our focus this morning is Jonah 1:17 through 2:10, which gives us uh, Jonah's prayer from the great uh, from the belly of the great fish that the Lord had prepared for Jonah. I would give you full context, but far better to let one of the Bible Project videos do that, and that's going to happen immediately after the reading of Scripture and prayer. Uh, <clears throat> I'm not going to say this again, so. write it down if you want to. You're going to want to to see these uh, videos. Thebibleproject.org, I think it is. Um, Not com, dot com. I think it's dot org. So it's going to give us a good context for the whole book of Jonah. It's going to tell the story for us in a very entertaining way. So as we read Jonah 1, 17 through 2.10, I'll ask you to stand if you would, as is our custom. When scripture is read. And the Lord appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And Jonah was in the belly of the fish three days and three nights. Then Jonah prayed to the Lord, his God, from the belly of the fish, saying, I cried out, called out to the Lord out of my distress, and he answered me. Out of the belly of Sheol I cried, and you heard my voice, for you cast me into the deep, into the heart of the seas, and the flood surrounded me. All your waves and your billows passed over me. Then I said, I am driven away from your sight, yet I shall look again look upon your holy temple. The waters closed in over me to take my life. The deep surrounded me. Weeds were wrapped about my head, the roots of the mountains. I went down to the land whose bars closed upon me forever. Yet you brought up my life 
from the pit. Oh Lord, my God. When my life was fainting away, I remembered the Lord and my prayer came to you. Into your holy temple. Those who pay regard to vain idols forsake their hope of steadfast love. But I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Salvation belongs to the Lord. And the Lord spoke to the fish and it vomited Jonah out upon the dry land. Let's pray. Well, Father, um, while we hope we're never in the exact same position that Jonah is in, many of us often find ourselves in the pit, in the pits of life, pit of despair. <clears throat> Sometimes we just can't, cannot make sense of what's going on. Um, Lord, uh, Jonah, because of his unwillingness to follow your your direction found himself in this place. Uh, and we often find ourselves there because of our unwillingness to follow you and, and, and for sinning. But Lord, oftentimes it's just the result of a broken world. And so whatever the case, when we find ourselves in a dark place, there is hope. And we pray Along with the Israelites before Jesus came. Come, oh come Emmanuel. Lord we pray now that we know. He has come. We desperately long to see. The face of Jesus. Even before we get out of this service this morning. Uh, give us the hope of eternity in Christ. In whose name we pray. Amen. Thank you. Be seated. <clears throat> the book of Jonah, a subversive story about a rebellious prophet who hates God for loving his enemies. Jonah's unique among the prophets of the Old Testament because they're typically collections of God's words spoken through the prophet. But this book doesn't actually focus on the words of the prophet, rather it's a story about a prophet, a really mean and nasty prophet. Jonah appears only one other time in the Old Testament. It's during the reign of Jeroboam II, one of Israel's worst kings. And Jonah prophesied in his favor, promising that he would win a battle and regain all this territory on Israel's northern border. Now, it's important to know that the prophet Amos also confronted Jeroboam, and through him, God specifically reversed Jonah's prophecy, promising that Jeroboam would lose all of those same territories because he was so horrible. So before the story of Jonah even begins, we are suspicious of Jonah's character. The book of Jonah has a beautiful design with all this literary pairing and symmetry. So you have chapters 1 and 3 telling the story of Jonah's encounter with non-Israelites, first with some sailors and then with Jonah's hated enemies, the Ninevites. And each part offers a comic contrast between Jonah's selfishness and the pagans' humility and repentance. Chapters 2 and 4 contain prayers of Jonah. One is a prayer of repentance, kind of, and the other is a prayer in which Jonah chews out God for being too nice. Now, this careful design of the book is matched by a really unique style of narration. 
The story is full of all of these stereotyped characters who, ironically, do the exact opposite of what you think they would do. So you have the prophet, the man of God, who rebels and hates his own God. You have the sailors who are supposed to be really immoral, but actually they have soft, repentant hearts and turn to God in humility. You have the king of the most powerful, murderous empire on the planet, and he humbles himself before God because of Jonah's five-word sermon, and even the king's cows repent. This kind of story fits what today we would call satire. These are stories about well-known figures who are placed in extreme circumstances, and they use humor and irony to critique their stupidity and character flaws. Let's just dive in and we'll see how all the pieces work together. The story opens as God addresses Jonah and commissions him to go preach against the evil and injustice in Nineveh, the capital city of the Assyrian Empire, Israel's bitter enemy. But instead of going east to Nineveh, Jonah goes in the opposite direction, finding a ship going as far west as you can go to Tarshish. Now the big question here is why? Why does Jonah run? Is he afraid? Does he just not like Ninevites? And we're not told yet. So the man of God tries to run from God, and he boards a ship full of pagan sailors. He goes down into the ship, and then he falls asleep. So God sends a huge storm to wake up his prophet, while ironically, the sailors above board are wide awake to everything that's happening. They can discern that there's a divine power at work here. So they throw the dice, and they discover that Jonah, he is the culprit. So they ask Jonah to explain himself, and Jonah spouts off a whole bunch of religious mumbo-jumbo. He says, yeah, I'm a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God who made the sea and the dry land. What a joke, right? God made the sea and the dry land all right, and Jonah's dumb enough to run from this God by getting on a boat? And when the sailors ask Jonah what they should do, he says, kill me, right, by throwing me overboard which kind of seems noble at first, until you realize this could actually be his most selfish move yet. I mean, what better way to avoid going to Nineveh? So he puts his blood on these innocent sailors' hands by trying to force them to kill him. They're reluctant, of course, and they repent to God even as they toss him over. The storm subsides, and they end up fearing the God of Israel, and unlike Jonah, they actually worship God. But God foils Jonah's plans to escape Nineveh. As Jonah's sinking, God provides this strange, watery tomb for him, the stomach of a large fish. Now, of course, under normal circumstances, this would be certain death. But in this story, everything's upside down. And so Jonah's submarine death becomes his passage back to life. Cramped in the stomach of this beast, Jonah utters a prayer, where he never technically says that he's sorry, but he does thank God for not abandoning him. And he promises that he will obey God from this point on, no matter what. And God's response is quite comic. The whale vomits Jonah back onto dry land. So once again, God commissions Jonah to go and preach in Nineveh, and Jonah complies. We're told that Nineveh was a gigantic city. It would take days to walk through. So Jonah gets one day in, and here is his message. Forty more days, and Nineveh will be overturned. It's five words in Hebrew. Now his sermon is very short, and it's also odd. I mean, look at what's missing. There's no mention of what the Ninevites have done wrong or of what they should do to respond. There's no mention of who might overturn them. And most noticeable, there's no mention of God. What's going on here? Has Jonah intentionally given the bare minimum of information? It's like he's trying to sabotage his own message or ensure the Ninevites' destruction. There's just no effort on Jonah's part here. 
whatever his motives are, the plan doesn't work. Because no sooner does he utter this five-word sermon that the king of Nineveh, the entire city, including all its cows, repent in sorrow and ashes. So for the second time, these evil pagans show themselves to be more responsive than God's own prophet. So God forgives the Ninevites, and he doesn't bring destruction on the city. Now, here's the brilliant part of the story. The last word of Jonah's short sermon, overturned, means just that, turned over. And it can refer to a city being overthrown or destroyed, like Sodom and Gomorrah, but it can also be used of something being transformed, like turned over and changed into its opposite. And so, comically, Jonah's words actually came true, but not in the way that he intended. Nineveh does get turned over as Jonah's enemies repent and find God's mercy. The final chapter brings all the pieces together. Jonah, he's fuming mad, and he utters his second prayer. He first tells God why he ran away back in chapter one. It was not because he was afraid. Rather, it was because he knew that God was so merciful. And this is great. Jonah actually quotes God's own description of himself from the book of Exodus, and he throws it back in God's face as an insult. He says he knew that God is compassionate and that he would find some way to forgive these horrible Ninevites. You can just hear the disgust in Jonah's voice. Jonah then cuts off the conversation and he prays that God would kill him on the spot. He'd rather die than live with the God who forgives his enemies. Fortunate for Jonah, God doesn't comply and simply asks if Jonah's anger is even justified. Jonah ignores the question and he goes outside the city to camp on a nearby hill waiting to see what might happen happen. You know, the Ninevites might repent of their repentance and get roasted after all. What happens next is very odd. God provides this viney plant to shade Jonah from the sun, and that makes him quite happy. But then God sends a tiny worm to eat up the plant, and so Jonah loses his shade. And there, in the heat of the sun, Jonah asks again that God kill him. So God, again, asks Jonah if his anger is justified, and Jonah barks back, absolutely just let me die. And those are Jonah's last words in the story. God's final words are what concludes the book. He says that this whole vine incident was an attempt to get through to Jonah, right? Jonah got all concerned and emotional over this vine, which he only enjoyed for a day. And God asked Jonah, you know, aren't humans a bit more valuable than vines? I mean, isn't it okay if God might feel the same kind of emotion and concern for the city of Nineveh? that's full of thousands of people who have lost their way and also their cows. And that's how the book ends, with God asking Jonah for permission to show mercy to his enemies. And what is Jonah's answer? The story doesn't say, because that's not the point. The point is that the book is trying to mess with you. And God's questions here are actually addressed to you, the reader. Are you okay with the fact that God loves your enemy? And so this book holds a mirror up to the one who reads it. In Jonah, we see the worst parts of our own character magnified, which should generate humility and gratitude that God would love his enemies and put up with the Jonah in all of us. And so this strange story actually becomes a message of good news about the wideness of God's mercy that ought to challenge us to the core. And that's the book of Jonah. Well, I think we could go home now. <laughs> uh, that was great. I didn't realize Jonah was so ugly. Uh, but there it is. Uh, that kind of attitude makes you ugly, doesn't it? Um, so I think they captured 
probably the way he felt most of the time quite well. When you think about the book of Jonah, you tend to think about it belonging in a children's Bible story book. And I knew that this video would be way over uh, the heads of some of the younger ones, but in the same way that Bugs Bunny was over the heads, you know. There's humor that adults get, and then there's humor that kids get. And, and, and we all appreciate that at a different level. But if you think that this is only a story for children, then take another look at the book of Jonah. It, it, it is a literary masterpiece with profound truth that pointedly speaks to many of the issues of our day. In fact, they're the issues of every day. Uh, you may have been told that Jonah was afraid, and that's why God punished him. But as we've seen, it's because Jonah was a racist who knew that God would save the wicked Ninevites if he preached to them. Uh, so irony and humor, as we've already heard, in, in the book in which God seems to be amused as Jonah throws one tantrum after another. God is just amused. Now that's not an excuse for you to throw a tantrum. But if you do, when you do throw a tantrum, please know that God is merciful and he's made provision for your sin. Rather than give an exposition of the text, which is chapter 2, uh, primarily chapter 2 of Jonah, uh, I want to offer five lessons from the book of Jonah and comment briefly about each one as we move toward the Lord's table. In fact, I would love to do this for a lot of the, uh, uh, of the smaller books of the Old Testament here and there, just kind of give you a, an overview of how to look at the book, and then you can take some time and, and study it. Uh, so the first lesson from the book of Jonah, this story is about God, not so much about a prophet and a whale. While I agree with the, with, with the video that God's trying to mess with you, absolutely. But still, even more so, this story points to a merciful God. Most of the time when people read the Bible, they put on moralistic glasses. And they look at the scripture and say, now how can this make me a better person? I mean, that's a good thing uh, for the heaven deal. I've, I need to be better so that I can go to heaven. Boy, one of the songs when I was young has come back recently. Where, oh, where can my baby be? The Lord took her away from me. She's going to heaven, so I've got to be good so I can see my baby when I leave this world. It's the way the world thinks. If I'm good, God will approve me, and then I'll go to heaven. Now, that's one of the reasons Jonah was so frustrated with God's ways because the Ninevites, as has been mentioned a couple of times, were wicked, awful people. They did things that no other conquering nation did. One of the things that they did was they pulled the people out of, of their homeland and they moved other people in. They didn't allow them to stay as distinct groups. They made them intermarry. That's where the Samaritans came from. It's because of the Assyrians pulling the Israelites out and making them intermarry with Gentiles. So Jonah's like, no, it can't be right that you would save these people. But so when I look at Scripture, we, I, we, many of us look at Scripture, we do so the same way Jonah did. All right, God is a good God. He expects me to be a good person. Good people go to heaven. Bad people don't go to heaven. Um, but the Bible was not written so that we can have awesome lives. It was written, rather, 
to show us who God is, how we are brought in a relationship with Him, and only then how we can live in ways that, that surely uh, benefit us, but more importantly, how we are called. That This word tells us how we are called to live for others, to love other people. So before you come to Scripture, make sure you put the right glasses on. Don't put those moralistic glasses on. Put the gospel glasses on and you will see the truth of our second lesson from Jonah, which is God's ways are not our ways. And that is a good thing. If God's ways were our ways, Jonah would not have entered the world that he went into as he did. As for Jonah, I'm not sure that he was thinking what he was thinking when he ran from God. I mean, do you think you're going to get away from him? Over and over, he said, I'm, just kill me. Just kill me, Lord. I'm tired of this. I know that some of you, many at different times of your life, you've said, look, I just don't want to do this anymore. It's not that you're suicidal, but it's, it's that you're like, look, I'm just tired. If I go to the doctor, I hope I get bad news. Now, you, surely you don't think that really, not deep down. Because once you get the bad news, oh, you change your mind. But Jonah was serious. He wanted to die so much so that he said, throw me over. Did he think that he could change God's intended outcome for the Ninevites? If he didn't obey? Jonah knew what God would do. I'm not sure Jonah thought he could change God's plans, but he didn't want to be the one to successfully prophesy to the Assyrians. Now, you felt like that sometimes. In fact, I, in fact, a lot of us think like that a lot of the time is, <clears throat> I want someone else to do the dirty work. I don't want to do this. If this is the way it's got to be, I don't want to have my name connected with it. But let it happen even still. As for me, I'm having none of this way, that way. Just let me alone. Jonah knew his Bible and he knew that God had chosen the Jewish nation to be his people. And God told the people very clearly in his word over and over that Gentiles were, would be brought in to the family. <coughs> but my, like most Jews, Jonah didn't emphasize that point. <laughs> I mean, it's like, I just don't want to think about that. In fact, as a member of God's family, Jonah knew exactly how God ought to think and act. You ever felt that way? You want to tell God how He is to think and act? In your great wisdom, be careful not to miss the third lesson from Jonah, which is, do not presume to think to know whom God will save and whom He will not save. Imagine during these last few years that ISIS had actually been quite successful in the Middle East. And they had captured four or five nations and had established a formidable government and military. And suppose you also knew that within <coughs> somewhere between 50 and 75 years, ISIS would be strong enough militarily to defeat the United States. Imagine that your commission is to go to that country and to tell them to repent. 
And you knew that they would experience this short revival, but in the end, they would conquer the United States and set up Sharia law and, and commit unspeakable atrocities to the people of this country, to your family, to your grandchildren. Maybe you avoid it, but your grandchildren wouldn't. Jonah's calling was something like that. So here is a question for Jonah and for all of us. What did any of us do to deserve God's mercy? What did any of us do to deserve God's mercy? Why then do we treat any, anyone else as less valuable than we are? I'm smarter than you. I'm better than you. I've got better bloodlines than you. I've got better opportunity. Why, why do we treat anybody less than we are ourselves? If you missed this past Wednesday night's Grace Matter session on grace and race, let me encourage you to go to the website. You can get both um, the, the session that we had Wednesday night and a couple of weeks before. A lot of the panelists who were here some, uh, Wednesday night uh, met for dinner and they recorded that. I didn't realize they had recorded that until just recently, even though it's been on the website a little bit. Um, so, it, they're talking about the church's response to racism. Look, I was touched and challenged by what was said on Wednesday. We would do well not only to learn from Jonah's mistakes, but to acknowledge with all of our hearts and, and all of the implications that go along with this acknowledgement that God, our God is a merciful God. We have no idea how He's going to build His church. Look... I, it's, it's all speculation, but if you're a student of history, you see these cycles of history. Nations rise and then they fall. Most of us have grown up thinking that America is going to go on for a long, long time. Not so. It just is inevitable that we move off the stage as the, as the great world player in, 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 in a particular way of thinking, and someone else is going to rise. I, I've thought... It's probably China. It's probably somewhere in Asia. But, you know, you never know, especially for the gospel. It could be the Middle East. You hear these amazing stories about conversions, about the ways that God is causing people to dream dreams that say, go to this person and they will tell you the gospel. By the way, that's very interesting, isn't it? Always, when God comes to someone in a dream, and I absolutely believe He does that, it does, he doesn't say, here's what you need to believe. You need to believe that Jesus died for your sin. He says, go to someone who will tell you. It's just his way. He always uses a human instrument to share the word with other people. And you start saying, well, I, I got it myself from the word. Start thinking about it. Trace it back somewhere an individual was involved to help you understand what scripture means. God uses us that way. But what if his way is to raise up people that we call terrorists and save them? And the gospel goes forward through them. Now the Ninevites didn't come around all the way. But they did repent on the spot. Um. We have no idea how God is going to build His church. But we absolutely know that there's no room for racism in any of our hearts. The fourth lesson from Jonah is this. What appears to be a sign of God's displeasure 
may in fact be his deliverance. Another mistake when we read scripture is to read a story like Jonah and say, well, yeah, that's how you people are. Whether you're talking about the Ninevites, whether you're talking about Jonah, you're like, that, well, that's how you, you people are. You're all like that. Maybe you don't think that your sin is as bad as your neighbor's sin, but don't hold your breath for God to put your neighbor in his or her place on Judgment Day. You're not going to be worried about your neighbor on Judgment Day. Pray instead for mercy. You know, we always read scripture with those gospel glasses on and we understand that when Jesus says things like, if you don't forgive your neighbor his or her sin, then my heavenly father will not forgive you. And we understand this in the broader context of the gospel. But don't weaken the impact of what God is trying to say to us when he says something like that. Pray for mercy. And mercy you will receive if your hope is in Jesus. When the Ninevites repented, God relented from the judgment that he was ready to unleash. When we repent and acknowledge that the judgment we deserve was poured out on Jesus on the cross. We not only avoid judgment, we gain the riches of heaven. And we don't have any idea what those riches, how great they are. Another common misreading of Jonah is to think, <clears throat> I better not disobey God or he will judge me. And so you begin to think that anything bad that happens to you is God's displeasure with you. What if I, I must have done something. Because look at what's happened to me. Uh, or worse, you think that God has no right to allow this horrible thing in your life. How many people walk away from God when something awful happens in their lives? You may be thinking, I, will I would never do that. Maybe you've never been tempted at the level that, that is coming down the road though. When horrible things happen in our lives, we, we either say, oh God is mad with me or I'm mad at God. There's anger, frustration going on one way or the other. But everything that happens is bigger than we can imagine. The fish was not so much God's judgment on Jonah as it was his instrument of deliverance for both Jonah and for the Assyrians. Without the fish, Jonah would have drowned. Instead, he preached to wicked people just like himself who are now in heaven. And you know what? I, I assume that Jonah's in heaven. I've got more confidence that the Ninevites are than Jonah. But I assume that Jonah's in heaven. And if he is, he's glad that things happened the way that they did. Every single thing. Because God is weaving it all together into this beautiful, beautiful picture. There are some things that I sense in my heart that I'm not able to really articulate for myself, much less for other people in the ways that I want to. But maybe over this last year, I've just seen in ways that I never have before. And I've always felt this way. But God is not only sovereign every single thing that happens. 
is for his design. It's according to his design. It's for his will. It's for his purposes. Even our own stupidity. Even our own sin. God uses it all to glorify himself. And one day it's going to all make sense. So, if indeed Jonah is in heaven, he's happy about the way things turned out. What about you? Why has this terrible thing happened to you? I don't know. But I do know one day it will make sense in God's grand design. Which is the last lesson. Is why the last lesson is so important. Salvation is from the Lord. Trust God even in the pit of despair. It's the primary thrust of the book of Jonah. Salvation is from the Lord. When you suffer, look to the cross. That's where our salvation was won. Though Jesus died and was buried, just as Jonah was in the belly of the well for three days and three nights, and then came out, Jesus came out of the grave. Though you are in the pit of despair, trust in God. He is sovereign over all things. And He is good. Steve Smoker, who used to be at TBR when I was there many years ago, used to use this phrase a lot. You can always trust God. You can always trust God no matter what. He's always doing the right thing. This past Friday night, three culprits and two tallies were blessed to attend a performance of Handel's Messiah at Duke Chapel. Look, we've heard from so many people that say, I never remember, I can't find out what the dates are. Next year, if I can remember, Allison will have to be the one to remember, you know that. If Allison remembers, let me put it that way, uh, we'll put a link on the city uh, to the box office. Look, I think they have a performance this afternoon. And if you are an absolute IT genius, you can find the link and figure it out. Right, Keisha? Call them. Call them. Google Duke Chapel box office. And if they're open, you can go. Oh, my. It was the evening and the performance were sublime. As moving as it was to hear... For unto us a child is born. The beautiful melody uh, written by Handel. And as thrilling as it was to stand with hundreds of others in the magnificent Duke Chapel as the Hallelujah Chorus was sung. I was most moved by the biblical account of Jesus suffering as he died sacrificially on our behalf. And by the hope of the resurrection that was pointed to in the account of Jonah's experience. That we've considered this morning. When they said, Jesus, give us a sign, give us a sign, Matthew 12. Uh, the only sign you're going to get is the sign of the prophet Jonah. Who was in the belly of the well three days. Three days and nights will the Son of Man be in the grave and then he will. To prepare for the Lord's table. By reciting the first portion of part two of Handel's Messiah as a responsive reading. Uh, the text is based on the King James Version uh, with the Psalms as they are in the common book of, of prayer. 
So as we call Jesus, recall Jesus' death and resurrection, you'll notice that all of these passages of Scripture, except for the very first one, are taken from the Old Testament and telling us about the price that was paid for our redemption, that we might have hope, no matter how good or how bad we are. Our hope is in Christ. As we read, let us remember the great price that Jesus paid, die in the death that we deserve so that we might live. So would you please stand and we're going to read together uh, responsibly. I'll begin and then we'll all read. Now the way this is worded, it's a little tricky, so pay attention, all right? And even if I say the wrong thing, you say the right thing, okay? Behold the Lamb of God that taketh away the sin of the world. He was despised and rejected of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. He gave his back to the smiters and his cheeks to them that plucked off the hair. He hid not his face from shame and spade. Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. He was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned every one to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. All they that see him laugh him to scorn. They shoot out their lips and shake their heads, saying, He trusted in God that he would deliver him. Let him deliver him if he delight in him. Thy rebuke hath broken his heart. He is full of heaviness. He looked for some to have pity on him. But there was no man, neither found he any to comfort him. Behold and see if there be any sorrow like unto his sorrow. He was cut off out of the land of the living. For the transgressions of thy people was he stricken. But thou didst not leave his soul in the grave. Nor didst thou suffer thy holy one to seek corruption. Lift up your heads, O ye gates. And be ye lift up, O ye everlasting doors, and the King of glory shall come in. Who is this King of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. The Lord of hosts. He is the King of glory. Amen. That's our hope. You can be seated. As you are seated, I'll ask the elders and the deacons and the uh, worship team to come forward and prepare for the Lord's table. This meal reminds us of why it is that we have hope. This meal reminds us that Jesus took our place. In just a moment, we are going to come forward, but before we do, uh, come forward to receive the elders and the deacons and the, all the servers, the, the worship team will partake first, and then uh, there will be ushers in the interior aisles and they will alert you when to come. Come down those aisles, go back the outside aisles. We invite all baptized believers to 
uh, join us at the table. If you have a child and you're wondering, should my child or not, that's a good uh, way you can determine if your child is baptized. We're never, by the way, we're never going to withhold communion from anyone who, who receives unless a person is under church discipline, then we would. Um, and that's never happened in our body before. Uh, but um, again, these, this is our, our statement about communion. We invite baptized believers to participate with us. It's a meal for family members. And we're brought into the family. We're bought by the blood of Christ and brought into the family of God through repentance and trust in Him. In the book of Matthew, we're told, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you, for this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many, for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine. Until the day when I drink it new with you. In my father's kingdom. Let's pray. Our father. We acknowledge that you are a merciful God. And in this account of the life of Jonah that we have read about, or a very small portion of his life, we are reminded that your plan will not be thwarted and you will save whom you will. We are blessed recipients of the mercy and the grace that is available through Christ. We thank you for making available a way for us to be rightly related to you. Thank you, Father, for drawing us to Jesus. If there are those here today who do not know Christ, then may they call out in repentance and faith and be saved. Lord, we thank you for the body that was given on our behalf. We thank you for the blood that was spilled for without the shedding of blood there is no forgiveness of sins. We thank you for the beautiful, although horrific, Circumstance caused this beautiful plan of yours to bring us into the family. Thank you for Jesus' willingness to come. None of us would have thought to send him in that way. We thank you for Jesus' willingness to obey your law in every particular point. Every command he kept fully. And then to willingly die as a sacrifice. Even though it meant being separated from the love of the Father. 
for a time that our sins might be paid for. We thank you for all of this and we thank you for the resurrection of Christ. And as we partake, we look forward to Jesus' return. And it's in his name that we give thanks. In the book of Hebrews. Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church, located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.